0: This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net.
1: Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave and we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells, with two castings of The Gaze Turns Inward to See Real Beauty. We first talk about how the first session of Visible Sun works. Then we discuss character arcs. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two.
0: With the gaze turns inward to see real beauty, we discuss aspects of Invisible Sun characters. In this segment, we're going to be talking about the first session and how it works and what you can do as a GM to help this process along. So, I thought this would be an easy one for me to tackle today because I've got a first session coming up tomorrow night, so I need to be prepared to, to actually run one. Uh, it's been a little while since I ran a first session. I, I ran one for a playtest, participated in one for a playtest. Um, how many How many have you done, Scott? I did
1: one for my uh, own playtest. I did one for a shared playtest, one at Gen Con last year. So I guess that would be three. Oh, no, four, because I did one for an actual play coming up that we've talked about. Ah, cool. That's That's going to be coming up pretty soon, isn't it? I believe it has already launched. This is the truth bleeds at twilight on the MCG Twitch channel. It will be airing. I think typically every other Friday night is the current plan, but plans are still a little up in the air. So Mm -hmm. uh, stay, stay tuned. If there are changes, watch Twitter and that sort of stuff. And we'll push more information
0: out. Uh, Cool. I'll be, I'll keep an eye out for that and uh, pay attention. Uh, So for the first session, this is going to be the, it's, A lot of other games and systems and i think it's kind of custom now to call this session zero uh it tends to be the you know the game uh it tends to be the session where everybody gets together and you talk about what your characters are going to be like and you're going to talk about the expectations for uh the upcoming campaign or series of games that you're going to be playing with invisible sun you get this first session where everybody's going to get together and you're going to complete your characters, uh, complete the character creation, and then figure out kind of where you want the direction of the campaign to go for the near future, for the short term, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, but basically, once, <clears throat> once you're ready to have a first session, uh, all of your players are going to need to have a few things selected, or at least what I've been telling my players is, Make sure you've read through a few things and have a a few ideas of where you want to go with one of your characters, just so that you don't come to the table and have no idea what you want to do. Uh, Because then if if you're in that situation, it's going to be very hard to participate in this session. So those things that you need to have selected, uh, or at least you've pondered on these, would be your order, your heart, your forte, and your soul. These are the categories that I've told my players, if you know which order you want or you're kind of debating between two of them, like that's good enough. Once you get to the table, you're going to make a decision and figure out what you're actually going to play. Same with the heart, the forte, and the soul. There are many, many fortes in the game. So that's, I think, where most players are going to spend a lot of their time trying to figure out what options do they have available and what do they want to do with them. But similar to cipher system games, uh, the name for a forte is fairly descriptive uh, about what you're going to be doing. And even if you just read the first paragraph for any given forte, it's pretty explicit about what that forte is all about. It is
1: useful to coordinate just to make sure that people don't have the same forte, because you should try to avoid having a uh, duplicative forte when possible. Uh, it's not strictly
0: a, you know, banned, but I... I Don't think it's a great idea to have two people the same forte i did ban it at my table i said the the forte is the thing that is supposed to make your character unique so (laughs) it kind of defeats the purpose if you're not the only one that has this forte um and there are plenty of them so being able to find a few options that you're interested in while keeping in mind that other players are interested in some of them as well is something i think most players should be amenable towards
1: and and worst case, most of the fortés have multiple paths they can pursue, and so if you have two of the same forte, you may still be able to have different types of characters because they may pursue different paths. For instance, the converses with everything forte can either choose
0: to focus on animals or non animals. Oh, uh, so why would you? Why would you not be able to talk to objects? It's it's so goofy. To me, that is the obvious choice, but apparently, it is not the universal choice. I suppose. So once you've got everybody gathered, uh, the characters are going to take turns. Well, the players are going to take turns introducing their characters, saying, here's, what I, here's where I'm going with my character. Here's what I've selected uh, for these first four steps in character creation, just so that you know what everybody's going to be doing uh, or building. And then uh, the, you're going to take turns around the table uh, having neighbors, points of interests, and local issues created for each of those characters. And this is the the collaborative process that I think really makes this first session a lot of fun. And this is also one of my favorite parts about uh, role-playing games that run on Apocalypse World. Uh, this is where you get to talk to the other characters and build up this shared history with them. Um, but here it takes it even a little bit further and says, we're also going to put together a bunch of characters that your uh your player character knows about and we're going to you know create some potential issues that your character might get involved with and i i think this part of the first session is like the best part of the first session so uh let's say uh not as as an example but so each player is going to sit back and let the table pitch them an idea uh, first off for neighbors. And I think the book suggests that you make two to three neighbors for any given character. Does that sound about right? Yeah. I, I, I recall three, but I don't know how hard that three is. I, and I think it depends on, on your table. If, if you make two and people are struggling to come up with a third character, then I'd say just move on like two is two is a good starting point um but yeah i think it's three is probably the recommendation in the book uh but these so the the neighbor creation uh works like this your table pitches you an idea for the neighbor and then after they've come up with a concept for that neighbor is that how it goes scott i'm gonna have to check my book because now i'm confusing myself <laughs> Um, it is – I've seen it implemented a couple of different ways
1: that seem to sort of shift even during a, an individual first session. That It is intended to be a conversation and very organic. So don't worry about having a very strict order. So what will often happen is you'll say – you'll nominate a, a player to go first. That player will introduce her character mm-hmm. and then you will uh, solicit neighbors and often it'll be, they'll, people will, will throw out many different options. They may piggyback on each other and say, oh, I like that idea, but let's add this twist to it. Or let's combine these two ideas into one character. Uh, and then at the, in the end, the player should choose two or three, depending on the size of your party and what, where, how much time you have um, neighbors from the list of various options. Does that sound uh, like what you were experiencing in your previous first sessions?
0: I think what we generally did was we would create one, like we'd create one concept for a neighbor and then the player whose neighbor that was going to be would come up with a a name for that neighbor and a few more details about what they might look like and where they live. Uh, But also like coming up with a whole bunch of ideas to choose from also makes a lot of sense. And that would be a cool way to go too. Um, So after like, however you're going to do it uh, after you've created you know, a given neighbor, then it's up to the GM to decide if this neighbor is uh, positive, negative, or neutral uh, in relation to your character. So if it's somebody that has some sort of beneficial uh, effect for your character, let's say you have a neighbor who um, likes gardening and is more than happy to come over to your place and tend tend your gardens when you're out out and about and taking care of business. I mean, that's, that's an overall positive neighbor. So you're going to get Joy for that, uh, and you do that for all of the neighbors that you've created. Um, and sometimes it's not clear whether something is positive or negative until the
1: player decides how they kind of specifically want to interact with that neighbor. So your your wandering gardener could either be. Someone who's relieving them of the burden of taking care of their landscape and be seen as a friendly contact, uh, someone who's there to help out, and seen generally as positive. Uh, Or they could be seen as a grumpy neighbor who's upset that you don't take care of your lawn enough, so they come over and like rogue topiary the place. And uh, they think they're doing you a favor, uh, which – then creates a sense of obligation they feel like they that you are obligated to them they're mm-hmm. also nosy so they're since they're there cutting trees into the shapes of various uh creatures uh, then they're looking in your windows so the same character could really go two different directions uh depending upon whether you, you have decided to have a positive or a negative relationship with that character
0: yeah so the gm like you would you, you would take a look at how your your player is reacting to this, this neighbor or whatever aspect you're working on, and then decide at that point, is this positive or negative or neutral? and award, a joy if it's positive, a despair if it's neutral, uh, or nothing in the case of it being, you know, did I say neutral and bad? Ugh. Sorry, I just got back from Gen Con. I'm still tired. You can hear it in my voice. Too. <laughs> um. Anyway, so you would do that for... Uh, the neighbors for all of the, the players at the table, you would also create some points of interest in the character's neighborhood. And these might be locations um, uh, that are in the neighborhood that are interesting. I mean, it's a point of interest. And, and these do overlap quite a bit. I, I
1: know almost every time we've had some question come up on whether an, an introduced neighbor is actually more of a point of interest Um, Or whether it's a rumor. (laughs) So don't worry too much about that. Just if you have enough material to feel like the neighborhood has flavor, then Mm -hmm. whether it's classified as neighbors or points of interest or rumors matters less than um, just having gone through the process of generating a flavorful neighborhood for each character.
0: And you would repeat the process of handing out joy and despair for each of these. Oh wait, not for each of these. Sorry. Let me correct this. You would take a look at all the neighbors, determine if they are positive or negative, and then uh, balance them all out. And if the overall like collection of neighbors has a negative, a potentially negative effect for your character, that's when you would get a joy or a despair.
1: It's all neighbors and points of interest and rumors all together. All together. So each character will end up with a joy or a despair uh, after that process. All right. Fantastic. <laughs>
0: After you do all that, you're going to go around the table, handle that for every single player that's at the table so that everybody's got an interesting neighborhood. Uh, And then each player is going to choose somebody at the table whose idea that they liked or had an idea that they enjoyed, found interesting, uh, or just thought was really creative. And the player that they choose gets a Wicked Key. Um, We haven't talked about Wicked Keys Since the game officially released, Um, but wicked keys have a, they're, they're a way that you can just get through a problem in the game. So if you have something that you're unsure how to handle, if you're, if you've got uh, somebody who is preventing you from achieving your goal and it's like, you just don't have any good ideas or you have biffed a a roll or two, you can always pull out a wicked key and just get through that problem. But that's probably another discussion for another time. Uh, but after you've put together your neighbors and your points of interest and the local issues, uh, you're going to go through and you're going to create, uh, bonds with the other characters. And this is the part that borrows heavily from, uh, other, other games that do this, like the previously mentioned apocalypse world. Uh, there are a list of bonds in, uh, in the first session section of the key. And you're basically going to go through there. You're going to choose to be bonded with another character in some fashion or another. Uh, I didn't really see any suggestion as to how many bonds you should have. But a lot of these bonds allow you to have uh, some sort of relationship with more than just one person. So you, you might have selected a bond. Uh, you might have selected to be friendly, friendly rivals with somebody else. Uh, And then another player at a table could say, hey, the three of us went to school together and now you're bonded with multiple, multiple people. Um, So the bonds usually have some sort of mechanical benefit. Uh, Sometimes it is just flavor. And sometimes it's benefit mixed with a drawback. So
1: one of the characters in the con game uh, at Gen Con, or I should say two of the characters were bonded in such a way that when they were close to each other, their magic was more powerful. But if either of them took damage while the other was close, that all, that that character, the other character also took the same damage. So the bonds can kind of cut both ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Once you've got your bonds sorted out, then the GM and the players figure out uh, starting ephemera. And, you know, with there was a, a suggested mix. Uh, every character has a max amount of ephemera that they can handle. And then you've got a stack of like a thousand cards you you could just shuffle them up and deal them out so you have a random distribution which is probably how i'm gonna do it because i'm not super interested in in like finding the right ephemera object to give to my player you know for a situation that i have in mind for the future i'm much more interested in just handing out these things and seeing what happens so um, you can do it either way, uh, but you want to make sure that uh, you you work with your players in order to get them the stuff that they should have. Uh, and you don't want to duplicate these things either, according to the suggestion that they have. And, and the cards help reduce duplication.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think they make the ephemera more of, an, of a commodity, which is intended so that they will be used and replenished rapidly. Uh, and, I think one of the reasons why Monty kind of wants the game to be played with the material in the cube is that the style of play is intended to be based on the cards. And as one example of that then is the ephemera where the, he wants it to be easy to use them and get them back and to ra- and easy to randomize uh, and, and not like traditional RPG like treasure tables. Uh, Where, okay, now that we're done with this, let's take half an hour to figure out what's present and who gets what uh, treasure and all of that. He doesn't want that interrupting the flow of the story. So instead, uh, he wants you to both be willing to spend Ephemera quickly because it's just a card. Mm -hmm. um, And to then uh, have the GM distribute Ephemera uh, rapidly to keep that economy flowing. Yeah, there's a lot of cards to shuffle up, though. I'm not sure if I'd say it's (laughs) easy. (laughs) you might just grab some subset of them for any, any given evening. And I was surprised that this was not a big part of the Gen Con, uh, game by Monico games that the, 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 the adventure is written. I don't think it had any ephemera handed out. No, it did not. But it, uh, every table that I ran used ephemera extensively and enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it'd be even better if they were just cycling through them. I think they were, uh, the way they had set up the physical product of, of the, uh, materials for the con game made it difficult for them
0: to have points in the adventure where you're distributing uh ephemera it would also be a logistical nightmare to like have even more stuff that you needed to pull out from the cube right so i think for logistic reasons they didn't do that but in home game it is recommended that you churn through those like you would ciphers uh, so last thing that we're going to touch on real quickly here would be the Desideratum. Uh, there are, This is your group's desire for the foreseeable future. Uh, I guess what I said before was short-term. And uh, you've got six things that you're going to choose from. So your group's desire might be power, money, information, allies, travel, or altruism. And the cool thing about this is this is basically your players telling you hey, GM, we're interested in pursuing this thing for at least the next session for sure. So it gives you a jumping off point as a GM to come up with some ideas and be confident that your players are going to be interested in them because they basically told you that's what they want to do. Um, So while I was thinking about this uh, on our drive back, I was looking at the role of the GM as basically a facilitator here you want to make sure the players are engaged everybody is pitching in ideas uh and everybody's comfortable doing so and people like everybody is contributing as much as they want to so that if you have somebody who tends to you know shy away from coming up with ideas on Mm -hmm. the fly at a table you can make sure that they have an opportunity to come up with something without everybody looking at them and putting them on the spot. Um, but that's like the this seem, that seems to be the biggest thing for me as a GM when we run this first session, make sure everybody's able to contribute and coming up with ideas. The other thing that I'm going to be doing as a GM is making sure I'm there to provide suggestions uh, that will help to inject more of the Invisible Sun flavor into what my players are coming up with they're not all as familiar with the setting as i am uh they aren't all comfortable with surrealism nor am i but working together i should be able to take a suggestion that somebody has that they're all into and say hey what if we make this one little change just to inject a little bit of surrealism here so that we get an understanding what this setting is going to be like
1: i've had some first sessions that formalize the process to Uh, of uh, generating ideas such that for each character and each, say, neighbor, all of the other players suggested one neighbor. And then the player chose, say, three of those they liked best. And that guaranteed everyone would have an opportunity for input, but that might also have unduly required people to input equally across all of this all the neighborhoods where they might have more inspiration on some than others mm-hmm. so I, it's not necessary that one do that but that's one way that you can ensure that everyone ha- at least has something built into the structure of first session where the GM will turn to her and say what neighbor do you recommend or um, some you know make sure that she has a, a con- an opportunity to contribute uh, material that could be selected for the neighborhoods points of interest all that sort of stuff. Yep,
0: it's a good idea. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it. I'm not gonna make everybody uh, contribute, you know, a neighbor, but I will give them the opportunity to create more than is necessary so that we can choose.
1: Right. And uh, I I would not feel comfortable, like requiring everyone like (laughs) contribute. If if I turn someone and say, Do you have an idea for a neighbor? And they said no, that'd be fine. Um, But it is is useful as a reminder. And maybe you just keep it as a on a little note card or something you're taking notes on mm-hmm. just to say oh well I have not asked this person directly whether she wanted to contribute and just make sure you ask everybody uh, if they don't want to at that moment that's fine but uh, you do
0: want to make sure that everyone feels like their voice can be heard uh, so speaking of voices getting heard mine is mine is failing let's move on to the next segment <laughs> see you on the other side of the uh, uh, interstitial
1: music with our second casting we discuss the use of character arcs in invisible sun character arcs are an interesting and relatively novel uh, element of invisible sun uh, this is uh, there you know the, the game has borrowed from a lot of other games so first session borrows from the kind of zero uh, session zero uh Mechanics built into many other games, but I haven't seen a lot of them. I'm not saying none, but I haven't seen a lot of them that emphasize character arcs. Uh, In fact, this is one of the parts of the game that's really hooked a lot of interest and is being built into the Cypher system now as part of the Cypher system second printing slash edition uh, that's currently being funded on Kickstarter. So if you're interested in Cypher System, the general Cypher System rulebook and its update uh, and the intended inclusion of character arcs as part of the general Cypher System, uh, you might want to check out the currently running Kickstarter uh, for uh, your best game ever. The Kickstarter includes both a system-neutral book of advice for running RPGs and the Cypher System uh, updated rulebook so you can check that out that's an indication of interest in character arcs
0: there's a i think character arcs are a thing in the seventh c rpg that just came out last year i think it was that is sitting on my shelf of shame I, i've not read that yet so it's entirely possible yeah i think that's they they handle character advancement through character arcs in an interesting way i forget i was listening to some podcast talk about it Uh, I may have to check that. I have to crack that book open and see,
1: because I'd be interested to compare how they've done these. Uh, But for Invisible Sun, each character chooses a character arc at character creation. Uh, They get this arc for free, whereas in the future they'll have to buy character arcs with acumen. And this gives the GM a sense of what that character wants to do. And I should say these arcs, run the gamut of a wide variety of possible story arcs from uh, solving a mystery to avenging to becoming uh, someone's death, let's say, uh, to becoming a member of an organization. They also include things like creating a beautiful art project or uh, building a romantic relationship or having a child. Wide variety of character arcs are available in the base book and, and more are coming. I believe they've said there'll be more of those in the Saturn book um, that's coming in the not-too-distant future. Uh, so uh, lots of options there, and, and it explicitly says in the book, these are just guidelines. Uh, you should tailor them or create new ones uh, of your choosing. So it's, it's a lot of openness in these character arcs. Each arc has the same basic structure. There is a, a cost if it's not your first character arc, Uh, Typically, costs are around two acumen, uh, but then they pay back that acumen uh, over time. So it's like an investment of two acumen, but you typically get four to six or more acumen back uh, by completing the various steps in the arc, because each arc includes a series series of steps that will reward you acumen and or joy or despair as you work through the character arc. So if you are trying to join an, an organization, as your character arc. Uh, You may need to, you you first have to buy the arc um, or take it as your first arc. You then have to declare your interest in joining that organization. That might be one step. A second step might be investigating the process of joining the organization. A third step may be participating in an initiation rite that is part of becoming a member of that organization. And then the climax would be the actual induction of your character into that organization. Uh, That climax, Often it rewards some combination of acumen and joy or despair. Now, this indicates that it is possible to take a character arc that you fail. <laughs> uh, and you, you might even have known that all along. This is not something where you spend three months on your character and then depending on how the die rolls, you just up, oh, oh, you don't get you know, you don't get in. Sorry, you don't get to join that organization. But instead, you might from the beginning say, I want to try and fail to join this organization. This is part of a longer series of arcs where I will seek to prove my worth to them or something along those lines. Uh, But if you need to generate despair, one way to do that is to start and fail character arcs.
0: That's an interesting way to think about it. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about intentionally failing character arcs just to get despair out of it. But yeah, it totally Mm -hmm. makes sense.
1: And there are some arcs that, from their very design, are intended to generate despair. So there are arcs that are about failing, and there are arcs that are about yeah falling from grace, for instance. Uh, So the the, the arcs are not uh, just—they're more varied than you might expect. These are not you know three or four fetch quest formats you could use, where it's oh every quest is a matter of getting. Uh, five of these polished stones and turning into your quest giver. Uh, and then you get the end of the quest. Uh, this is intended to be much more narrative uh, and varied. And so you, you can go in uh, many different directions and it may be that your group or your, or, or players within your group really want to use to kind of traditional character story arcs for their characters. And they want to join organizations. They want to collect powerful objects. They want to, uh, bonk monsters on the head and they want to find treasures. Those are all totally legitimate character mm-hmm. arcs. Uh, but also in the book are varied arcs to encourage people to consider things they may not have done in other RPGs, like you know find a romantic partner or have a child or something along those lines. And the game incorporates those sorts of arcs uh, that would have different steps in them uh, as well as the more traditional arcs.
0: Now you can have multiple arcs running at once, right?
1: Yes. Now, I would recommend against having more than, say, two or three, depending on the capacity of the player and the GM to keep track of these things. And we'll get to why that's the case in a few minutes. But the game does, there are references to having more than one uh, character arc. In fact, one reason you almost certainly would want to have more than one character arc is that there's a variation on character arcs called story arcs, which are shared character arcs. Now, that's not the desideratum. That is not the desideratum. The desideratum is just a general sort of theme, Mm -hmm. uh, as we mentioned in the previous casting, of like power or uh, altruism or something along those lines. Uh, But story arcs are a specific character arc from that list or that you've made up uh, that have the parts of a character arc but they're shared across multiple people. So it could be that uh, each of you has a character arc, and it ranges from uh, finding a romantic partner to creating an object of beauty to uh, finding your missing uh, parents who are pulled into the, the gray. And you all have your individual character arcs, but you might all also be pulled into a shared story arc of solving a mystery that is the traditional sort of plot mm-hmm. that people uh, would have in an adventure. And so you have a combination of your shared arcs and your individual arcs. Um, Though you don't want to, again, I'd recommend against having like four of them. You don't have like, I'm trying to create a thing of beauty, find a romantic partner, and my party is trying to solve a mystery uh, while also avenging a completely unrelated character. That would get a little unwieldy. (laughs) Um, But I think having... Uh, at one or two character arcs and one story arc shared across most or of the party would, would probably be a good balance.
0: Now, is there anything that says you can't have multiple character arcs that are the same? Like, could you have two character arcs that are solving a mystery? people around me keep dying. I have so much to avenge. Uh, I don't think there's any explicit uh, rule against it. Good, because I'm not saying that I have a player in my group that only wants to solve mysteries, but, you know, maybe I do, and they know who they are. It's a mystery for them to solve. Right. And, I mean, you're allowed to solve mysteries even if you don't have
1: the Solve Mysteries character arc. And it might be that some of the other arcs involve solving
0: mysteries, like the way you join an organization involves solving a mystery. So what you're saying is perhaps I could suggest oh perhaps the mystery here is how do you have a child correct or how do you avenge that whatever mm-hmm.
1: it
0: may be uh, so you can the, the the borders between these are narrative and fuzzy i'll keep that in mind but i'm still preparing a dozen mysteries for somebody to solve uh that's never you will always have them in your <laughs> pocket then so
1: that's it's good to have them around One way that this interacts with the actual play session is that at the end of a full session, it is customary to go around the table and ask everyone if their character has advanced any of his or her character arcs or the story arc as a whole. And they might say, oh, well, this time uh, I uh, was able to prove myself to this member of the organization, which is part of the process of becoming eligible to become an initiate or something along those lines. Someone else might say, oh, well, I collected these three items that are going to be very important in creating my object of beauty or whatever they have done in that session. They mention to, and uh, if there is consensus, uh, they then take that next step in their character arc. Uh, And then uh, receive, uh, you typically acumen, but maybe other things uh, from having taken that new step in the character arc. This has worked out pretty well. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed doing that, and that's something I plan to do in any game I play moving forward, whether it's Invisible Sun or not, mm-hmm. is having some form of character arc and story arc and having a re- review at the end of each session formally to say, have you made progress on this and rewarding such progress? Though also saying not every week will everyone advance every one of their character arcs because that becomes unwieldy, um, especially if they have multiple arcs, and all of, all of that. Uh, but I think if having one character arc and one story arc most of the players will be able to advance their character arc in any given session if they're trying to and having a cooperative GM. And then maybe everyone will be able to advance their story arc each time. Uh, and that gives the GM uh, some form of kind of anchor uh, to keep them close to where the party wants to be and what the story uh, can be to move forward. But character arcs can also be advanced in development mode. That's emphasized at many points in uh, the, the rules themselves. And so if someone is struggling to connect their character arc into the main play sessions, that may be an indication that that arc is best resolved through development mode where the GM and the player can interact Mm one-on-one and talk about, tell a story about that character uh, and how he or she advances uh, their particular character arc. Because not all the character arcs need to be resolved entirely during the full sessions. So to conclude, um, what here do you think is portable to other games that you think you might steal for Cypress System or Dungeons & Dragons or whatever else, uh, Knights Black
0: Agents you might be playing? Uh, well, I think the idea of having a personal arc makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and I know that some players that I've played other games with have had an idea for a character. They They've said, I want my character to go through this sort of growth. I want them to start here and end here. And at the end of it, I want them to have changed in a significant way. I want them to be different than when they started. So I think just, I'm not sure I would formalize this if I were to take this over to something like Knights Black Agents, but I think I'd say like, Hey, you know, character arcs are a thing and you should keep them in mind. And perhaps we can, you know, I guess the easiest way to do it would really be tying it to some sort of XP reward because it, it's not that difficult. It's it's easy to pull out and put somewhere else,
1: right? And what that reward would be and what the scale would be would depend upon the particular game, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's it, it's it could be adapted either fully using XP rewards or even partially just with using this as a a way to, as an event that happens during your session where you say, every one of you should have a goal that's independent of your shared goal, but you should also have your shared goal. And then at the end, we'll talk about whether you've advanced your individual goal or the shared goal, uh, whether or not we attach experience to that. Because in some systems, there's no, the experience isn't necessarily tied to advancing Mm -hmm. the plot. Uh, or an individual character's development, but are, are tied to other things. Uh, so how it's implemented would vary from game to game. But I, I think it's—I will—it's un, unlikely I will run a game in the future where I don't have some element of asking people what their arc is uh, and how, whether they have advanced that after each uh, significant session. Uh, some other games have things like this, uh, but they typically take them as as permanent or relatively permanent aspects of the character. So I think in Knights Black Agents they have. Uh, kind of goals. I don't think they may. I don't think they call them desideratum. I forgot what they call them. But characters have motivations. Uh, that's these are the things they're trying to accomplish, or or why. I think it's it's supposed to answer the question of why you are messing with vampires um, who have a lot of technology and money, and, when they could eat you. <laughs> and so this, and I see that kind of like what an arc might be of providing a goal, um, but it's relatively fixed, whereas arcs. Uh, build in this notion that you have a goal that you will accomplish, and there are steps to accomplishing it. And when you compl- when you accomplish that, you're likely wanting will want to have a new goal that you will have a series of steps to accomplish. So the the, the character is going to churn through character arcs and hopefully grow and change through them. Uh, I I think we mentioned when uh, we talked about the character tomes, uh, they the intent was the tome would only last for about. I think they said like five sessions or something along those mm-hmm. lines uh, because they thought that after five sessions, your characters would change so much. You'd want
0: to create a new tome anyway, kind of start over again for where yeah. you're at. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, and the guiding hand follows that same sort of philosophy. That's that's
1: what I was thinking was the guy. Yeah, the, uh, the guide. I guess it was both of those. Yeah, the guiding hand and the character tomes, uh, because this is a game where, where characters are expected to grow and change mm-hmm. over time. So it is less a game where you pick your character class at level one and you're expected to stick with that through two years of a campaign or something along those lines. Uh, I believe there's even a character arc for changing your order. Uh, I haven't read that one yet, but I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Uh, I may be hallucinating. I am also recovering from my four hours of sleep a night at Gen Con. Uh, But uh, those sorts of big changes are kind of expected to happen. That one probably only occasionally. Um, in the game itself. And so, you you know, we have changeries to change your body, but also your, your story and your motivations might change over time, in part driven by the rotation of these character arcs. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. Is available from drive Through RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at agonseer,
0: A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me, ampersand, text underscore red, on Twitter. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, it would be great. It helps. Uh, it helps people find our show while uh, while they're perusing out there. Uh, another great way to you know spread the word is tell your friends about our show. It's probably the best way to help us you know reach a larger audience. <laughs>